these realities. Please diligently examine the correspondence between your life and the truths that will be preached. That said, let's begin. My intentions this morning are threefold. First, I will expound the text. I will do my best to present and explain the truths it sets forth, as well as, um, as, well as identify the personally applicable implications. Then I will exhort from the text, and finally, I will show how we can conform our lives to these truths. So first, I will expound the text. Please turn your attention to verse 20. If you don't have your Bibles open yet, open them to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now, in fact, Christ is risen from the dead, a firstfruit of them that slept. And what a glorious but now this is, for it's in reference to the dismal conclusion rendered by the apostle in the preceding verse, specifically that we are of all men the most miserable if Christ was not raised from the dead. As was preached last week, this most pitiful condition entails that all is vanity if there is no resurrection, that our faith is void and so are the testimonies of many resurrection witnesses, and that we are still dead in our sins. But now, the apostle declares, now these prospects are nothing more than wicked lies, for in fact, Jesus is risen from the dead. Not all is vanity. There is meaning, purpose, value, and significance to this life because he lives and because of the guarantee of an eternal life. There is more to our existence than than eating, drinking, and the pursuit of pleasure. The reality is that everything we do and everything we don't do has eternal repercussions. Because, in fact, the Jesus whom we killed and buried has been resurrected, we also know that the testimonies of many witnesses were not in sound and that our faith is not in vain. The fact that Christ has conquered the grave gives us hope for redemption. Truly, we are not the most to be pitied. Rather, we are of all men the most blessed. How are we assured that the resurrection of Christ has such a glorious application for us? The scriptures state, Christ is risen from the dead, and he is a first fruit of them that slept. First fruits refer to the first crop of the harvest. Christ is a first fruit of those that have died in him, because he is the first one to have been raised from the tomb to eternal glories. In that sense, he is the first. He is the first one. He is the predecessor. And just as Columbus was the first Spaniard to sail from Spain to the Americas, so too is Jesus the first man to go from the grave to glory. He is our forerunner, our leader, and our captain in this voyage. And as Christians, we can have great peace as we lie on our deathbeds and prepare to bury our fleshly bodies in the dirt, knowing that our God, our God has walked this path, and that he has gone before us, knowing that he will lead us through safely to the other side by the route he himself has secured. However, not only is Christ the first fruit, and that he is the first of the resurrection crop, but he is the first fruits as he is also the guarantee of a successful harvest. For the first fruits are representative of the rest of the harvest. If the first fruits are rotten, the farmer can expect a poor reaping. Yet if the first fruits are successful, a successful harvest is likewise anticipated. Yahweh is the farmer of life, and the first fruits of his resurrection yield, namely Jesus, is successful. Hence, the success of our own resurrection is guaranteed, that is, if we're in his field, because the success of our Lord's resurrection, since he is the first fruit of those whom God will raise. Christ represents the rest of God's harvest. If he was delivered from death, so too will you. Again, that is only if he is truly your representative. Verse 21, Since indeed by man came death, so also by man the resurrection of the dead. And when we speak of death, we are not referring solely to the deceasing of the physical body, but to spiritual death as well. Death 
Death is the absence of life. Man was created to be in right relationship with God, glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And this is life. To relate to God rightly is to live. And when we sin against the Most High, we've lost our right relationship with him. We've lost life. Our condition then is accurately described as death. This is not conjectural either. The scriptures are the source of this logic. Ephesians 2.1 As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now as for physical death, it's a consequence of our spiritual death. They are inextricably linked. And though they are distinct, they cannot be separated. The reason we die physically is because our bodies are irreversibly determined to decay. For there is no life apart from God, who is life. At this very moment... We are biologically sustained only because God is so gracious to do so. However, if he were to remove his hand from us, our bodies would become lifeless instantaneously. Why does God perpetuate our heartbeats and supply our lungs, our breath with, our lungs with breath? It is because he is glorified to do so. And because he patiently endures with man, desiring all to be restored to him through Christ. For when our bodies give up our spirit, our spiritual condition is consummated If you are spiritually dead, then the full force of your death will be realized in the pit of hell as you exist, unreconciled to the Lord, and eternally endure the just punishment for your crimes against him. Conversely, if you are spiritually alive, if you relate to God as you were so greatly made to, knowing him and being known by him, loving him and being loved by him, fearing him, glorifying him, worshiping him and enjoying him, then your spiritual life will be consummated in the fullness of heaven experiencing the innumerable pleasures of eternal paradise and eternally delighting in the unhindered intimacy with the lover of your souls, your brother, savior, friend, king, and God, Christ Jesus. Spiritually speaking, all men are dead. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Each of us either has been spiritually dead or is presently spiritually dead. And if we persist in this deadly vein to the day our body surrenders its ghost, we will find ourselves trapped in an exceedingly miserable state of everlasting death. This death, it came about by man. But just as man was the channel for death, so also by man comes life. Specifically, death came to men through the one man, Adam. And the hope of life comes to men through the one man, Christ Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. First I must note that it is clear in the originals that the all in this verse refers not to all of mankind, but rather to all those in Christ. While it's certainly the case that in Adam all mankind died, this text is talking only about Christians. All the elect children of God were dead in Adam, and all were made alive in Christ. In order to understand this verse, we must ask what is meant by the phrases in Adam and in Christ. What does it mean for one to be in Adam and for another to be in Christ? Please turn with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. There's quite a few verses, so if you wouldn't mind turning your Bible there, that would be great. Romans chapter 5. Paul speaks on this matter in a depth relatively greater, saying in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. Verse 15, going to verse 15 instead. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more of the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. 
And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Verse 17. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through the one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's obedience, disobedience, sorry, the many will be made righteous, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I think I read that wrong, actually. It's for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And when Adam sinned against God, he lost life. He died, as he can no longer rightly relate to the great I am. And therefore, as the scriptures say, death came through sin. Sin gave birth to death, and death is its consequence and its child. Then the word of God says, death spread to all men, because all men sin. And although all men sin individually, this text is speaking of sin we commit through our forefather, Adam. That is, Adam represented you in the garden, and when he sinned, you sinned. We are culprits in his transgression, and we are just as equal, equally entitled to the death penalty for his crimes, because truly they are our crimes as well. This theological phenomenon is commonly described in terms of federal headship. Adam was, and God forbid may still be, your federal head. That means that although you were not there in the garden when he sinned, Adam represented you. And you, like all other sons and daughters of Adam, were born into Adam's federal structure, of which he is the head and chief representative. Adam represented mankind when he sinned. And because you were in his loins and were represented by him, you sinned as well. Consequently, you are subject to the dooming results of his actions, for they are as much your actions. The result of sin, of course, is death. Thus, through the sin of Adam, all men sinned, and so death came to all men. Practically, this means that you are inherently and totally sinful, that apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead at this very moment, and it is only a short matter of time before that spiritual death of yours will find its fulfillment in an eternal death, whereby all the just consequences of your sin will be wholly realized. Let me give some analogies of federal headship to help solidify this concept. In the realm of team sports, when one player commits a foul or breaks the rules of the game, the whole team gets penalized. But this is a rather crude illustration, though, because unlike the biblical reality, the player on the team is not the one and only representative of the team. Rather, the team is represented by each player in it, and if one misses the mark, they all receive the due consequences for their transgression. Spiritual federal headship is characterized by a single head that represents all others in the federal structure. And so what happens to him happens to everybody else, and everybody else is equally responsible for his actions. This, I think, can be more accurately demonstrated in a specific sports example. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with college football's Penn State tobacco, uh, Jerry Sandusky was a popular longtime assistant coach for the university's relatively strong football program. In 2011, Coach Sandusky was convicted of sexually abusing at least eight underage boys on or near the university property. And in addition to the personal penalties that he received, the university suffered a variety of far-reaching consequences for his scandalous actions. 
These devastating penalties were among the most severe ever imposed by an NCAA school, including things like a $60 million fine, a four-year postseason ban, and vacating all of the football team's victories from 1998 to 2011. This is a better picture of what federal headship looks like in Scripture. The football team, and the whole university in this case, was represented by the coach. And when the coach sinned, the whole university was convicted of sinning as well, and they suffered the consequent penalties for it. So too is the case with our former federal head, Adam. He represented us, and he sinned. Thus we all sinned through him, and we all suffered the consequence of death for it. What a catastrophe of of infinite proportions. So many lives eternally lost, and the crime is so infinitely outstanding, and the magnitude of the punishment so infinitely severe. But we also see in Scripture that Yahweh has himself become a federal head. He has taken up the form of a man, incarnated himself into human flesh, and endured our eternal penalties to the fullest extent on our behalf. He established a new federal structure whereby all who are in him may be raised from death to life immortal. And just as death came through the sin of Adam to all those who were in him, so too does life come through the righteousness of Christ to all those who are in him. Federal headship and representativeness is a theme that permeates our sacred canon. We can find another example of it in the popular David and Goliath narrative. As the giant Philistine harasses the nation of Israel, David is nominated by King Saul to represent the people of God in battle. And whatever was David's fate, the same it was for the Israelites. If he lost, so too did the Israelites, and if he won, Israel won. In this story, David is the federal head, and the Israelites are in his federal structure. David represents them, and they win or lose through David. Equally so are the Philistines represented by Goliath, as he is their federal head. Of course, as you know, David is victorious over Goliath, conquering him with but a sling and a stone, and the nation of Israel so defeats the Philistines. Christ is a champion federal head like King David, but of far greater magnitude. Romans 5, 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And it is much more. Continuing in verse 16. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Christ's headship, praise God, leads not unto death. All those represented by Adam will be condemned, but those represented by Christ will be justified. For the sinful works of Adam wrought death, but the righteous operations of Christ Jesus have wrought justification for all those in his federal structure. If he represents you, then God sees you as he is, righteous, blameless, and holy. If he represents you, then you have died with him. You have been crucified with Jesus. And the fullness of the living God's just wrath against your sinfulness has been totally paid for. All this through him. And we celebrate this during baptism. You can note that in verse 29. The condemnation we have incurred through Adam, we can be saved from through Christ. Not because of anything we have done, but because of everything that he did. If Christ represents you, then you too are raised from your spiritual death through him. For just like we died through Adam, so too are we made alive through Christ. So who is your federal head? Who represents you? Is it Adam or is it the second Adam, the son of man? 
Through one comes sin and death, but through the other comes righteousness and life. And as the Israelites won the battle through King David, so too do the people of God overcome death through Christ. For God represents you, and behold, his grave is empty. We can personally testify to this reality in our own lives if we know him. Because if we are saved, then you have seen the resurrection in your own life, in your own heart. You have witnessed the translation from death to life, in so doing, bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ by whom it is accomplished. We receive life-giving justification through Christ because we are reconciled to God through him as the just requirements of our sin have been paid for in full. We receive the righteousness through Christ because he represents us with the life of perfect obedience. And we are guaranteed a physical resurrection to eternal glories whereby the spiritual liveliness that comes through him will be wholly and fully realized in us everlastingly. This promise we have because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and he represents our future as well if we are in him. Adam was a first fruits too, but of a harvest of death. All those who are in Adam are guaranteed eternal condemnation. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The operative question for you then is how do I get out of Adam and into Christ? How do I acquire Christ as my representative and federal head instead of Adam. Repent and believe. This is what God prescribes. There's nothing we can do to switch federal structures by going to church enough, reading the Bible a lot, doing good things for the poor, saying the sinner's prayer, or even believing in the Bible or believing that Jesus is God. No such thing can save you. None of them can secure you in Christ's federal structure. God calls all men everywhere to repent and personally trust in Jesus. This must be our response, for we cannot be justified by our own works, but only by his works. You must confess your sins to God and turn from them. Then trust only in the Christ to justify you before God. And those who trust in the Lord alone to save them, he will not fail, but will surely deliver you from the bondage of sin and death, both now and forevermore, through Jesus. Much more could be said about this topic of federal headship, but this must suffice for now. As to why such a structure exists, I concluded that this was simply the way God was most glorified to make his world. And I'm thankful it is in place. I fear that without it, the gospel would be of no avail as representativeness is such an integral part of the good news in which we hope. But there's, there's no time for that sort of speculation right now. Uh, nevertheless, being represented by a federal head is a most essential component of biblical truth and a reality that must be both recognized and lived in accordance with. Now look with me at verse 23, if you will. But each will be raised in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Through the resurrection of Christ, believers are raised from the dead. And this spiritual reality will become a physical actuality in the end when he comes again in glory. That is that the life we now have through Christ will culminate with a bodily resurrection and a complete restoration of our fleshly anatomies to live physically and spiritually eternally in the presence of God. All of mankind, Christians and heathen alike, will be physically raised from the dead. Some will receive a body fit for the glories of the heavenly kingdom, while most will receive a body designed to torture the man forever in hell. Jesus said in John 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. If we are not represented by Jesus, 
then we have no good deeds before God. We will be physically raised from our graves to judgment and condemnation if we are not spiritually raised to life now through Christ. Though it is true that all people will experience such a bodily resurrection, some to life and some to judgment, this scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 pertains only to the resurrection of believers, those who are in Christ and will be raised to eternal life. When the elect are resurrected, they are raised from the dead physically, and the new creation which they have been made through Christ, they transform into completely. This particular text makes it clear that there is an order to the final resurrection. First Christ was raised, and then those who belong to him will be raised. He is the first fruits and the representative of the rest, as well as the means by which the rest are raised. Thus it is theologically necessary for him to be raised before anybody else in the whole sense of Christian resurrection, bodily and spiritual. In Greek, the word order in this verse is a military term, meaning rank, file, regiment, or troop. And so we get the imagery of Jesus, our general, rising up first, and then at the final trumpet sound, the rest of God's armies arising in like manner. Now look with me as I read verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. When the dead are raised to judgment, some to condemnation through Adam, some to justification through Christ, the end will come. And Yahweh's divine program of restoration and the history of human salvation and judgment will conclude with the bodily resurrection of mankind and the rendering of final verdicts. For us, this is the end of life as we know it and the beginning of eternity. Christ will abolish all other powers and authorities, both those directly opposed to his reign and those supporting it. There will be no other dominions. All things will be subjected to the complete and unobstructed control of God. The war will be over. The final victory won at long last. Christ is and will be the conquering lion, the warrior God, and he is establishing his kingdom, which will have no end. His conquest is one of total domination, and he will most certainly succeed. The last enemy to be abolished is death. This he defeats through the Christian resurrection which is fully completed when we are both spiritually and physically perfected in him. Death died in the death of Christ. For when he breathed his last on the old rugged cross, he represented our sin and our death. Through his own death, God abolished death. And the full effect of his victory over death will be realized in the end of time, when all those in him will be raised from the dead to life immortal. The Father is the one who is empowering the Son's heavenly campaign and accomplishing those those most marvelous conquests through Christ already, but not yet. The Father himself will not be subjugated, however. Rather, Christ will hand over to him the comprehensive dominion he has secured. Christ also submits himself to the Father, this that God may be all in all. Our Lord's mission will subdue the totality of the universe to an everlastingly and undisturbable administration. 
the Godhead will himself govern all things immediately. He will rule sovereignly without any intervention, completely exacting our obedience to him, and we will worship him directly and directly derive all of our happiness from him. He will be all in all. The finale of his story is determined. It ends with a perfect theocracy. This is the kingdom of God which Christ is forcefully advancing. It is at hand as we speak. Having now done my best to expound these scriptures in the time allowed, I'll proceed as the apostle does in this text to exhort and admonish us to live in light of the gravely grand realities contained within this excellent passage. In verse 34, Paul writes, Come to your senses and stop sinning. Come to your senses and stop sinning. This exhortation is the primary thrust of the text. It is an imperative, a command from God to wake up, literally to arouse from our drunken slumber and live soberly. Much like the church today, the church in Corinth was failing miserably to live in light of the realities of Christ's resurrection and the imminent establishment of his kingdom. As the apostle reminds us of these magnificent truths and calls us to live appropriately, to get real, to come to our senses, and to live as we should because of them. All of us are spiritually inebriated, so do not think that you need no admonishment, because though many of us have heard these truths proclaimed time and time again, each person here fails to live in accordance with them. It's a matter of degrees, for while all men fail to live in perfect accordance with the truth, because of our inherent sinfulness, some Christians are more in sync with reality than others. And in the church... Most professing Christians are far more disillusioned with spiritual realities than they should be. Many are so spiritually drunk that they are on the verge of destruction. And though you may protest on the grounds of of mental comprehension, our lives are the principal evidence of our deep spiritual intoxication. This is because an enormous disparity exists between our lives and lives that are conformed to truth. And while there will always be a difference, it should not be nearly as colossal. God commands us to sober up because the lack of correspondence between our hearts and reality is far worse than it should be for true Christians. Although we doctrinally agree that Christ rose from the dead, we do not live as if he rose from the dead. Although we believe that he is making a kingdom for himself, we do not live as if this kingdom is real and rapidly approaching. First, let's look at some of the ways our lives fail to match up with truth. It may seem to us that we accept these doctrines in our minds, but the practical reality is that we do not believe them as much as contrary things. Our lives prove what we believe most. We live as if Christ is still dead, as if there is no resurrection for us, and as if there is no eternal destination. And though we may deny it, our lives are mostly reflected of pagan beliefs. We see this manifest in a myriad of ways, some of which I will now direct your attention to. Most of us are overly concerned about our physical health. It is godly to care about our health, and by no means should we neglect or destroy these God-given vehicles. Though this is righteous, a majority of us struggle with hypochondriacal tendencies that result from an inordinate concern about our physical well-being. And we see this played out in radical submission to white coats, medical experts, in the predominance of medical action in our lives, and our readiness to medicate ourselves for any and every physical affliction and in doing anything possible to minimize pain, regardless of the consequences. While none of these are wrong in and of themselves, it is the high, 
degree of concern over such things that should not exist in believers, but it does. If we wholeheartedly believed that our bodies will be totally restored and truly trusted that physical life as we know it is only temporary rather than uh, ultimate or permanent, medical issues would have less weight on our lives. We would be far more concerned about eternal things instead of perpetually seeking physical well-being. This is akin to fervently tidying your house hours before it is demolished and rebuilt. As we will say later on in this chapter, we are promised an incredible new body. Now, if Christ were not raised and there were no resurrection for us, then we would have just cause for obsessing over our physical health because this is all there is to life. and We want it to be the best possible for us now. One would be very concerned about these things if he did not believe in biblical resurrection realities. Tragically, this is how most professing believers live. What other ways do our lives fail to reflect a genuine faith and truth? This also works itself out in excessive concern for politics. And once again, it's godly to care about such things to a biblical degree, but what is found in many professing Christians is an unwarranted care that has no place in our lives. This, in light of the reality that an eternal government is speedily advancing, and it guarantees the complete abolishment of all other rulers and authorities. Why then do we find ourselves preoccupied with legislations and nominations and international affairs? Why more active in reforming this earthly government, which is passing away, than we are in advancing the kingdom of God? Our lives reveal that we do not truly believe in the kingdom coming. When Nazi Germany invaded France and occupied the country in 1940, I doubt that the French were concerning themselves with tax reforms. And how absurd, how can Christians be so concerned about our nation's rights, regulations, leaders, and laws when undefeatable hosts of heavenly armies are invading and will soon overthrow our government and install an entirely new one forever and ever? Such undue attention can only be maintained in our lives if we truly believe that this government is not exceedingly temporary. This concern can only survive in our hearts if we believe that our earthly government is worth supporting more than the coming one. This cannot be the case with men and women who earnestly hold to the truth that this government is, in fact, rapidly passing away, and that eternal government is rapidly, forcefully advancing. So do not be overly concerned about earthly dominions, rulers, and authorities. They will be abolished, and very soon. Another way the lives of professing believers reflect hearts and minds that are authentically disillusioned with reality can be observed in your obsessive concern over other people's perception of you. If Christ is not raised from the dead and the approval of God is neither attainable nor valuable, men have nothing better than to seek the praise and affirmation of others. We care so much about what other people think of us, relentlessly striving to maintain an acceptable image when in reality the only concern I ought to have about the perception of others is what I cause them to think about Christ. We live as if there is no God to please, but only man. And we live as if man is all in all. These are just a few of the innumerable ways our lives manifest our deep spiritual insobriety. All of these have in common an unjustified desire for ephemeral pleasure. Our improper concerns about things such as politics, health, or perception of others share the similar foundation of an inordinate desire for temporal prosperity. Although it's not wrong to enjoy the affluence and prosperity with which God has graced us here, for most, 
This pleasure has an especially idolatrous seat in our lives. It is our supreme desire for happiness now and heaven here that undergirds our longings for comfort now, political righteousness now, perfect body now, peace with all men now, no suffering now, and perceived as holy by others now. And this most fundamental craving results from a lack of genuine faith in the worthwhile of eternal glories. And so we find ourselves living for the sakes of this world only, rather than the next. Thus Paul writes in verses 30-32, through 32, Why are we in danger every hour? I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The apostle affirms that if Christ was not raised, and if there were no hope of eternal happiness, I would have no reason to endanger myself or to extremely suffer for any such cause. Instead, I would avoid suffering and danger. I would seek nothing but to eat, drink, and be merry, for all I have is a human hope, and there is nothing more to this life than that which I find between conception and the grave. If there is no Lord to love and serve, and no promise of eternal glories for which man ought to strive, then why should we suffer? Why should we not incessantly seek earthly happiness and comfort? Indeed, these are the convictions of unbelievers, yet it is the lifestyle of believers alike. You can ask yourself, how much do you care about comfort? To what lengths do you go to avoid suffering, to experience the most pleasure possible? How many of your thoughts, words, deeds, and activities are determined by your desire to do what you enjoy most? Is most of your time dedicated to seeking personal satisfaction, sport, fun, and personal happiness? Such should not be the case if one whose love for God and desire for His glory surpasses all else. Such should not be the case for one who believes in eternal glories that far away any sufferings that could be experienced in this world. Such should not be the case for somebody who realizes that true happiness is found in living the way you are created to live in right relationship with God. And it is the everlasting joy of His presence that we should seek. Such should not be the case for one who understands and wholeheartedly believes that what they do now matters for eternity. You cannot reasonably pursue ephemeral prosperity so mightily unless you deny these eternal realities. Yet how many of us seek this very thing with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength while simultaneously professing with our mouths to believe in the resurrection and heavenly kingdom? That lifestyle is how pagans live. Brothers and sisters, if you look like the world, talk like the world, think like the world, and desire the things of this world, there's something radically wrong. The concerns of this world and the concerns of the next are diametrically opposed, and they cannot rationally coexist. How disillusioned we are indeed. Our lives fall woefully short of accurately reflecting Christian convictions. So how should our lives be? What does a life lived in reasonable accordance with reality look like? It will consist of desires that correctly correspond to the spiritual truths of our once-deadness and sin, the surpassing graciousness of our Christ's federal headship, the resurrection we have through the Lord's and the coming kingdom of heaven. We will not be overly engaged in political affairs of this world because we are far more concerned about the advancement of Christ's rule and the implications of his ultimate conquest. We will recognize that this government is destined for abolishment, 
So we will give to Caesar what is Caesar's and not much more or less, concerning ourselves wholeheartedly with eternal things of ultimate value. And whether we think it or not, when we act in, in such disillusioned ways, we are acting in accordance with the lie, believing that what is earthly is what is ultimate, valuable, and worth living for, rather than reality, which is that ultimate value is in that which is eternal and of God. We will truly believe that a new body awaits, thus we will not vainly strive to achieve a heavenly body in this world. We will be more concerned about our spiritual well-being than we are about our physical well-being. By no means will we allow mortal pains and fleshly distractions to dominate our lives. We will be people who are singularly concerned about God's perception of us, caring not for the praise of man because we understand it to be worthlessly empty. Additionally, we will not improperly seek temporal happiness nor strive for earthly prosperity. Instead, we will agonizingly run this race to win a heavenly prize, desiring only the pure, authentic pleasure that comes from knowing and living in right relationship with the great I Am, the truth. We will love people the most possible. We will love God the most possible. For tomorrow we die, and then comes eternity. We will make the most of this time now. These true beliefs of ours will be manifest, will manifest themselves in our deeds, in our desires, in our words, and in our thoughts. So hear God call you this morning to awake from your drunken slumber and obey his command. It is for your best interest and out of your desire to please and glorify the God who loved you so much that he died for you. And out of your desire to, and out of your deep concern for the lost and for the eternal blessings that come from living for him now, wake up. Come to your senses and truly believe these truths. Failing to do so is sin. You can never rightly act in legitimate accordance with the truth and sin. Now listen, sin is not living, speaking, desiring, thinking, and acting in accordance with truth. So wake up. Do not be deceived. Stop sinning and properly live in light of these divine realities. This is our Lord's command. Our only question then should be, how do we do this? In order to answer that, we must be aware of why we have this problem. What is the cause of our drunken stupor? It is ignorance. Return to verse 34. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. There are two possible forms of this problematic ignorance. The first is an unchristian ignorance about God. It's the ignorance possessed by somebody who does not know God through Christ. They do not have a right relationship with him, and they are personally ignorant about him because they are still dead in their sins. If you are not saved, then you are ignorant about God. The solution to this, of course, is reconciliation to him through Christ. Of this day, repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Be ignorant no more. Only then can you know God. The second form of ignorance is one that a true child of God experiences. It consists of not knowing him well, of lacking personal intimacy with him, of being unfamiliar with his ways, his wills, and his heart. But don't be deceived, as you can have a Ph.D. in theology and be woefully ignorant of God. Do not say to yourself, I'm a relatively mature Christian, or I've read lots of books and memorized many scriptures. I've studied theology and know much more than my fellow believers. Surely I am not ignorant of God. True knowledge of God 
is justified by righteous living. Conversely, true ignorance will not fail to manifest itself in your life. Many at Corinth thought they had a great deal of knowledge about God, but Paul calls their ignorance what it is and lovingly says it to their shame. What they have is not true knowledge of God. While it could be the case that you have been unaware about the aforementioned truths before the sermon, it is unlikely that this is the ignorance most of us suffer from. The ignorance with which we are plagued is distinguished by a lack of personal conviction. If knowledge is defined as true, justified beliefs, then we lack knowledge not because we are short of justified truths, but because we believe it so little. We don't genuinely believe the truths justified by the Bible. If we sincerely believe them, then we would not be so ignorant and we would live differently. So a problem we have is one of ignorance, personal ignorance of God, and a consequent lack of authentic faith in these spiritual realities. The remedy for this ignorance, then, is to know God more, to know Him more. This will heal the deficiency of our beliefs, for the more we know God, the more we will trust Him. And the more we trust Him, the more we will be certain and sure that what He says is true. Thus our faith will increase, and we will actually believe in our hearts the justified truths of his word, acquiring true knowledge and eradicating the ignorance which causes our spiritual insobriety. Scripture is the primary means of grace by which this is accomplished. We know God more through his word. The Bible is how God speaks to each of us personally. It is the means by which Yahweh reveals himself to men. So if we want to know him more, we must be men and women of the book. We must devote ourselves to the consistent, daily reading of scripture. So much of our immaturity as Christians is simply because we do not read the Bible. We are ignorant about God because we do not seek him. He is ready to make himself known to us, and he assures us that he will reveal himself to those who seek him. So seek his face fervently, diligently, and faithfully. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Know God more. The more you know him, the more you will love him. The more you will truly desire to live for him and him alone. The more you know him, the more you will sincerely trust what he says, and you will find your faith in these spiritual realities increasing. You'll become more certain and sure of these matters, and your your concern for properly living in life then will also radically grow. Knowing God more is the cure for our ignorance and so the remedy for our spiritual stupor. So know God more and awake from your slumber. This discipline must be coupled with persistent prayer and meditation. The Most High speaks to us through his word and we speak to him through prayer. We must ask him to increase our faith, to increase our love for him, to conform our concerns to the truth and to change our minds and hearts so that we genuinely live in light of reality. Pray for these things and determined to meditate on the truths of Scripture, work through them, chew on them, contemplate them deeply, apply them to every aspect of your life, and speak these truths to others. These are some of the relational means by which God applies the work of Christ to us through the Holy Spirit, transforming us from the inside out. This is how internal heart change is wrought in our lives. We must decide to faithfully engage in these practices he has given us. We must resolve to do our best to live in accordance with the things we know to be true. Finally, in our efforts to sober up and live in accordance with reality, community is another absolutely essential component. 
Now, with respect to these objectives, community can either be a means of destruction and deception or a means of grace. Look at verse 33. It says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Those who you associate with and spend time with can either have a detrimental impact on how you live or a constructive one. And if you regularly commune with individuals who deny the disgust resurrection realities, either in practice or in principle, you are likely to conform to their corporate normatives and yourself be ruined. However, if you surround yourself with Christians who are zealously striving to live in light of reality, it will bolster your efforts to do the same. This communal recognition and affirmation of these spiritual truths will help increase your faith in those truths. And their active endeavors to live accordingly will encourage you, assist you, correct you, and hold you accountable to do the same. And this should be a portrait of the church, an elect assembly of God, striving to live in accordance with the truths presented in Scripture. Tragically, though, many churches have become a source of bad company in a congregation that has a corrupting effect. Instead of being people that aim for true living, they themselves lack genuine conviction of these essential realities and are more concerned with the carnal pursuit of earthly pleasure and prosperity than they are the kingdom of God. We must collectively work to be a congregation of good company that supports righteous living. In conclusion, it has been my prayer this past week that you would understand the glorious realities of Christ's resurrection our resurrection through him and the coming of his celestial kingdom. I also hope that you heard God command you to live in light of this and that you do the means of grace by which he conforms our lives to these truths. Let's pray to that end. Lord, please help us to do just that. Cause us to devote our lives, our time and our energy and our efforts to seeking you fervently. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. Cause us to know you more and sanctify our hearts and minds. Help us to live in accordance with these truths, to truly understand them, to be gripped by them. Lord, may may they captivate our minds every minute of the day. And may you help us live in light of these uh, magnificent and most divine realities that you presented in this passage. We pray that you would do this for your own glory and by your spirit, for it is only by your spirit that it can happen. We ask this in your name. Amen.